You're listening to Death in Numbers, a podcast created by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back to our Food for Thought series. I'm Amy Vider. And I'm Carolyn Barda. Today, we ask a seriously hashtag important question. Does InstaFood actually taste good? Why are there so many songs about rainbows? Can you taste the rainbow in your bagel? The unicorn in that milkshake? Should sushi be in your burrito? Today's episode about foodie culture breaks down into several bite-sized pieces. First, we'll consider how our visually obsessed world encourages both food, culture, and community. We'll think about why you might buy a physical cookbook in 2017. And discuss the influence of tastemakers on food trends. Then we'll debate the future of the professional food critic in the age of Yelp. We're putting on our predictor hats, diving into the weird, wonderful world of modern food writing and criticism. Join us, won't you? As we consider the world's most bewildering archive. The internet. Viral food. It's one of the hottest trends in the foodie world. Sometimes viral success comes overnight and remains like the perennially stacked line of Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. Franklin's is an award-winning barbecue establishment. In fact, it's been named the best barbecue in Texas and in the nation. That's a pretty big deal. It is a pretty big deal. Barbecue in Texas. And Aaron Franklin, the owner, has even had a successful cookbook, which we feature in our show notes, that has become wildly popular because it gives away his secrets about the barbecue industry. Franklin's opens every day at 11 a.m. And stays open until they sell out of meat. Which can be as early as 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And from the first day Franklin's opened in 2009, they've sold out. The line at Franklin's is now as famous as Franklin's itself. It seems to me that part of the experience of this hallowed institution is the communal effort and patience it requires. And they aren't kidding about the line. They wouldn't let Kanye West cut, and he's been known to interrupt a few people in his days. I'm going to let you finish. (laughs) I mean, they let President Obama cut, but he had a country to run, and he was really polite about it. That makes sense. Sometimes viral success seems accidental and can happen after years of obscurity. The bagel store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, has been making rainbow bagels for 20 years when a Business Insider video about the candy-colored carbs went viral on Facebook. 65.1 million views later, the store was so slammed with customers seeking to insta-document their rainbow dreams, they were forced to shut down until they could cope with the overwhelming interest in their product. Sometimes food virality targets Insta audiences with concoctions that are really designed to be shared. Austin's The Peach Tortilla creates two shareable milkshakes for Spreadfest, which was a social media marketing and management software company's lounge at the festival South by Southwest. The Donut Shake Me Up vanilla milkshake was topped with a sprinkled donut and three donut holes. The other shake, the socially sweet, stunned the eyes with its blue-tinted vanilla ice cream, cotton candy, whipped cream, sour tapes, lollipop, and candy necklace. I got a sugar high just talking about it. 
And to go along with that milkshake, they've staged multiple pop-ups around their viral milkshakes. They are ticketed events curated by a guest chef, and they're actually promoted by several different venues, offering these exclusive opportunities for those in the food know to snap and be seen. What you have to ask yourself is, is it about eating this food or taking pictures of it? Do you really want to eat that milkshake or to photograph it? And so that question is, if you don't share, post, or stream it, did it happen? In this series, when we talk about food writing, we broadly mean almost any writing that focuses on food. This might be a review or a reference book by a food critic or historian, or the genre most associated with the kitchen, the cookbook. The cookbook really represents a particular subset within food writing. It may contain images as well as descriptive or narrative passages. However, the majority of the text of a cookbook comes in the form of recipes, which teach a cook how to make a dish by presenting some type of formulaic instructions. But our culture encourages us to expand food writing to include social media posts, essays about food, food blogs, and an increasing number of food critics. Virality hasn't just changed how we dine out, it's changed how we cook in. It's time to talk 21st century cookbooks. With Amazon's introduction of the Kindle e-reader in 2007 and Apple's iPad in 2010, along with other tablets, there's really been this consternation caused in the publishing industry and the print media more broadly. There's been rampant speculation accompanying these technological advances. Surely now whether it was in 2007 or in 2010, the book was dead. Many who participated in these moments of mass hysteria especially assumed that the bottom would fall out of the cookbook market. After all, cookbooks tend to be pricier than the average hardback. They're often filled with high-quality photos printed on glossy paper. And much to this publishing industry surprise, cookbook sales flourished in the years following the Kindle with books like Ina Garten's Cooking for Jeffrey selling over 400,000 copies in 2016. I know one of them lives in your house. The reason cookbook consumers remained faithful to print editions, however, is quite simple. As the so-called queen of cookbooks, editor Amelia Tarragani explains, the way in which books are put together, the selection of the recipes, the photographs, the idea of going back and forth when you turn the page, it's an experience that I think the digital format hasn't managed to reach in the same way. Cookbooks today are more than just technical manuals. They can be aspirational or decorative. They're filled with rich images and sprinkled with narrative. And so they're really prime candidates for coffee table browsing. And in another form of food writing, we have cooking blogs. And cooking blogs really fulfill readers' desire to know something more about the chef who is creating the recipe. And sometimes a cooking blogger is not necessarily a professional chef. They might be an amateur. But a food blog allows readers to get a glimpse into the home cook's life, whether they're professional or not. Because bloggers often provide descriptions of their day, the activities they did before they made a meal, or what they have going on in preparation for a specific evening. Fun facts can be things like how their child likes their macaroni, in fact, preferring the craft box to a homemade tried-and-true recipe. Fans really get attached to different blogs, often because of their fundamental gimmick. For Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman, posts about fearless cooking in a tiny NYC apartment are interspersed with stories about her adorable children. These all captivate readers. For Molly of My Name is Yeah and the Pioneer Women, 
Reed Drummond, it's their decision to leave bustling city life for a rural farm in North Dakota and a cattle ranch in Oklahoma. It does sometimes seem like a really good choice to leave everything behind and go live on a farm, especially in 2017. For Thug Kitchen readers, it's profanity-laced, borderline insulting vegan recipes for those who need more veggies in their life. Whatever your cup of tea, food bloggers are here to serve it up. In return, readers get to interact with the bloggers, leaving feedback about the success of a recipe, making suggestions, and requesting substitutions. Can you make that gluten-free? Can I use rolled oats instead of quick oats? And they often debate the merity of high-quality ingredients. Do you really need that fresh vanilla bean? Or leave inquiring messages into the bloggers' personal lives. For example, how far along are you in your pregnancy? Who knows? If you follow these bloggers, you might just cook your way into your own unique life, too. It's really no surprise that bloggers score book deals because publishers are willing to bet on their massive fan base, which is really quantifiable in daily site visits or social media followers. It's still a gamble, though. Writer Leslie Kaufman notes, transferring readers, even loyal ones, from a blog to a book is tricky business. Because there's no magic formula for knowing which bloggers have audiences that are invested enough in them to purchase an expensive hardcover, much of the material is available free online. For many people, that gamble has paid off. It's hard to imagine a time before international cuisine and culture seemed approachable for the home cook. The ubiquity of blogger personalities and their glossy cookbooks emblazoned with mouth-watering images of food have ingrained foodie culture into our kitchens. Of course, not all food is created equally. Surely some things look better than they taste. But who gets to make that call? In previous decades, being a tastemaker meant exclusivity and usually anonymity. Publications like the Michelin Guide dictated global food standards. And food journalists at large, newspapers handled local reviews. These critics cultivated a certain mystique. Hiding their personas from the public eye, they wanted their reviews to be as unbiased as possible. They wanted to critique their experience as if they were an average diner, not somebody special. A restaurant's quality had to be consistent for all guests. Even today, reviewers for Michelin maintain high standards. There are only 120 inspectors worldwide operating in 23 different countries. They have to be anonymous. If an inspector suspects their identity has been compromised, they cancel the booking and have a colleague reschedule for a random future date. Then they do not visit the region for 10 years. It's a bit like being a spy, but like a cooking spy. Yeah, and then you're banned from a country for 10 years. Michelin, of course, is at the extreme of the food criticism spectrum. The other extreme is the 21st century self-proclaimed capital T tastemaker. They flaunt their status on social platforms, pushing their names and faces alongside their content. These social media tastemakers often have their meals comped in exchange for a positive Instagram post. These famous tastemakers rarely write negative posts. Something about a free meal makes you be pretty positive. And this carefully curated world of Instagram leads to tastemakers who are only spreading positive criticism for their own brand and, in fact, have to respond to the lack of anonymity if they do say a bad review. Yeah, but that doesn't mean the world of modern food writing is only positive. It's got a dark side, too. Other internet criticism, especially on the open source kind of world, can lean a little bit more into what we might call opportunistic trolling. 
or really horror stories about an experience you had at a restaurant where not only did you find a bug in your food, but the server was late, they overcharged you, and all of these things kind of happened at once. And, well, that might have happened. In fact, you might be digging for or hoping that you will get some type of compensation in response for your negative review. These kind of audience-posted bad internet reviews can really severely harm businesses. So, well, of course it's useful to look at audience-posted restaurant reviews. It's important that audiences take seriously their roles as increasingly critics in our modern age. And one of the things that we're seeing is that not only are restaurants responding to this change in criticism, but so are universities and institutions that focus on food cooking. At the Culinary Institute of America, there are even courses on food photography and styling so that their students can publicize their culinary creations and really understand how their food is becoming a social media brand. Yeah. The importance of presentation, you know, not just what you see at the restaurant, the momentary appeal before you eat it, um, but the lasting frozen image of the meal as it's stored forever in your Instagram archive matters to the ranking and appreciation of the food experience. I mean, after all, if it's not Instagram worthy, is it fine dining? So one of the things that we're going to consider in our next episode is the ways in which this food archive, which might exist in your internet history or your social media platforms, can be translated into a physical archive. And thinking about what type of food and which food stories we preserve and how we preserve them. So stay tuned. This has been Death in Numbers, a podcast created and produced by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. We are Amy Vider and Caroline Barda. Notes for the show, including links and photos, can be found on our website, humanitiesmediaproject.org. Our theme music is Enthusiast by Tours. Thank you for listening.